but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. This is episode 119. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And we're going to start with a little bit of a dragging. I'm going to drag James a little bit right now because we're getting ready to start this episode and we have this microphone that sits on its own tripod and he keeps knocking it over inadvertently. No, it keeps falling over of its own accord. The thing is like three year, over three years old. Three times you hit it over from direct actions related to your movements. <laughs> And you're blaming the microphone. It's like sitting in the twilight zone right here. Anyway. Get a grip, get a life, and get over it. <laughs> this is going to be a mostly non-tennis results episode. I think the only tennis result that we might mention is that Tennis Sangren is in the finals of Houston. Thank you very much, James. <laughs> you spoke that into existence. That was... So basically I made like the worst call in the history of this podcast because I predicted that Tennis Sangren was going to be basically irrelevant for the rest of his career and our lives and that we could live in peace. But mm. no, he's just made the final in Houston at the U.S. Clay Court Championships. Was this a prediction you made from your pedestal? <laughs> what is that supposed to What is that in reference the, to? The pedestal that we sit on and we harp on and we, mm. we, uh, we just wait for all these for people to... For someone to step wrong <laughs> so we can drag them. <laughs> In, we're so self-righteous. I don't see any pedestals here. I see a kitchen chair that we bought at Walmart. That is almost 10 years old and still in pretty impeccable mm -hmm. condition. That's holding my old queen ass. <laughs> Cecil. We've been, we, we read something from a detractor, shall we say. Uh, several, apparently. Well, it could have been all the same person because it, it wasn't been, yeah. signed. It was all anonymous. And I told you, don't ever send me negative reviews because I don't want to read them. Because what's the point? There are people who like us. There are people who don't. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I didn't. I wasn't upset about it. Oh, I was annoyed because they said old. Like, how <laughs> dare you? I mean, like, I, they're per, like you could say their personalities are horrible. I hate them. Burn in hell. But like, you really called us old? A quick rundown of what's going to happen on this episode. We are going to be talking about tennis, just not, uh, you know, with up to date results. No, that discussion is over. We have something you wanted to talk about, kind of a meditation on players' images and social media and how that's changed over the years. It's a thought evolution mm -hmm. based on stuff that we've been talking about in previous episodes and stuff I talked about privately in Charleston with some folks. Kind of dawned on me. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, Brangle, Madison Brengel's lawsuit against the ITF and WTA. We have a few updates on the Davis Cup kerfuffle casey delacqua's retirement and ode to her a quiz i'm quizzing jonathan this time and he doesn't know what it's about but it is topical i swear and finally a segment at the end about divas yeah we've uh <laughs> we've wanted to do a standalone divas episode forever the brainstorming has taken many forms, which we may still do. One of them was I once talked about 90s divas. Mm -hmm. I once talked about Whitney Mariah Celine because that was the, the trinity in my household growing up in terms of arguing with people who was better than who. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but this week, in light of the news of Mariah announcing that she suffers from bipolar 2, We've decided to add this new segment called Divas, and she will take spotlight in the very first segment. Naturally. Let's get into the first topic that you wanted to talk about. You're going to take the lead on this one. The main impetus for this little segment, a few nights ago, Sloane Stevens went live on Instagram. And I was watching it, and I was sitting there, and I was like, oh, this is, this is delightful. She's so genuine. Lord, I'm going to get dragged now. As in, it was such... An unfiltered, behind-the-scenes look into what her life was. Which mm. is the whole purpose of that kind of social media, right? Mm. And it's also something that doesn't come across in press. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, like, where is this disconnect? And then I'm also thinking to myself, 
we're clearly at a point where some players don't need press to get their their personalities through or to connect with their fans right they can bypass that whole step in a lot of ways the tennis press for whatever reason beat their own doing or what have you have become a little bit obsolete because the the players don't have to answer to them they don't have to engage with them and they don't need them to get their personalities or their stories or narratives out there to the public right so that's what struck me Mm -hmm. like sloan can come here in the middle of the night 2 a.m in her hotel room with her friends and do a live video with some random person she's meeting for the first time have a chat with the person for two minutes that's so earnest and fun and sweet and you gain so much more insight from that than you do these rote rehashed back and forth question and answers in press Mm -hmm. i imagine back in the day you know say steffi graf were so inclined she'd have to call up a newspaper guy or or her agent would call up a newspaper guy to set up uh, a magazine guy i should say to set up an expose uh an interview you know to tell a story yes or you'd be asked about she'd be asked about something in press but then it won't be written about until the next day and you'll get maybe get a, a paragraph somewhere in a newspaper there's no live feeds of press conferences there's no transcripts for you to access and now it's the immediacy of being able to connect with fans is so different the the, the press is just not needed for it anymore the press's role has kind of stayed the same, but I think the way that players view the press has changed. So journalism still has the same values and conventions, but like you said, players can circumvent the media if they want to get something out there, right? They mm-hmm. have many, many platforms on which to do that. Part of maintaining that relationship from a player's perspective, I imagine, is fine, i let you do your part here that you have to do for your journalistic duties, knowing that maybe down the road something else will will be a byproduct of this relationship to my benefit mm-hmm. you know being be being able to talk about 11 by venus you know i'll be able to plug it here or there and i'll be able to to get one here you know like right. but there's no need to to play that game necessarily anymore if you don't want to if you don't feel obliged to if you don't feel that it's part of your duty as a player if you don't feel beholden to the wta tour because there are players who absolutely go through the mundane, oftentimes inanity of sitting down in all access hour, then doing post-match interviews, all that stuff. And they're, I don't know if they're happy to do it, but they present themselves as happy to do it and are fully engaged, you know, and present right, themselves right. as as how they want to be seen or who they are, whatever, right? But they're, they're consistent throughout. There's still those players, but it seems like there are some who for, I'm thinking for this reason, are not about that life anymore. And we come from it from a, a funny position because sometimes we are dependent on that enforced player interaction in the press room, right? Like we need that. We, If we're at a tournament that we've spent our own money to go to, we want players to, prevent, to present themselves in an interesting way in press because that's all we get. We can't necessarily get them on the show outside of that that avenue. But at the same time, seeing a player sort of decide how to present him or herself on their own platform is very interesting and a lot to, a lot of times more exciting than you would get in the traditional sense. It reminds me of like the studio system back in the day in Hollywood where celebrities' images were so curated and controlled and many of it much of it was just made up, it was just lies, fake relationships they set up for the press. But stars needed it and they relied on it because those were the only platforms on which to get their image out there. Like that was their way of self-presentation. And now those mes- modes are, are legion. They're everywhere. So it's more self-curated. But what we're seeing now too is when, pe- when folks say, oh, so-and-so is above the game or above it all as having a negative connotation, we see now that Serena and Venus are they're quite literally above it. Like they <laughs> exist above the WTA. Now they're part of the WTA, mm-hmm. but they don't have to play by those rules. Right. You could make the argument that they've earned that right. And so when Serena can call up Vogue 
or Venus can call up any business magazine to push her own interests outside of tennis. They can compartmentalize their media exposure however they want it, right? If they want to do something tennis-related, there's a spot they can go to. If they want to, if Serena wants to have some fun with Mackie, <laughs> with Medicare Mackie, mm-hmm. then she can go do that on Snapchat. There are all these different ways that they can interact with fans, business partners, and expose different facets of themselves because they are so big. And so there's kind of a catch-22 here now. It's like, well, the WTA gets to benefit from having stars that are so big that can cross over into all facets of culture. But at the same time, they're, st- they're now too big to play by the, not play by the rules, but to, to utilize the avenues that most WTA players have at their disposal. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's frustrating for the people whose job it is to wrangle those big stars and mm-hmm. to promote the league based on what a lot of these older players built. Players who've been out here for a long time, who have big followings, it can be hard to sort of wrangle them and and use them to promote your product willingly because they're out there promoting their own businesses now. And we've seen that the leagues are trying to adapt. The ATP and WGA are getting into video, social media. You know, they're they're trying to move with the times. Something to look out for is like, are players going to be receptive to it or are they going to continue to find new ways to create kind of their own brand? Oh, for sure. And we definitely see this on a week-to-week basis. We just saw the Two Truths and a Lie segment coming out from the WTA. We saw it with Wozniacki. And then who else did it? Garcia. Mm -hmm. That's always going to be something that's required of them to participate in those kinds of things. So the WTA can keep up in that way, but the players have access to their own media as well. It's like this, what we're going to be talking about with, with doping. <laughs> in terms of athletes, those who have access to cutting-edge drugs, like mm. they'll always be a step ahead of the people coming after them. The players now, I feel, are in a position where they're always going to be ahead of the tour and the establishment tennis media in terms of social media because they're the ones who create the (laughs) content and they have most direct access to putting that content out. Mm -hmm. And part of that is where, how much, and in what direction you're going to give of your personality and an image because you have control over that and you don't need the press and the WTA to get that out there. I think that was my main Mm -hmm. point. And it makes sense. I think players are more savvy now, and there are also many more opportunities for female athletes, especially to make money, than there used to be. So you can see social media as a way to create this branded image of yourself, to establish yourself as a personality, as a brand. It's not only to interact with fans, but it's a way, like it's a a site of capital. (laughs) It's a new investment, right? It's a new market. I'll let you take lead on this next segment. We're going to be talking about Madison Brengel and her brand new lawsuit against the WTA and the ITF. So Madison Brengel, the American tennis player, has filed suit in a Florida state court against the WTA and ITF on the grounds of battery, negligence, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. She was diagnosed with something called complex regional pain syndrome in 2016, which basically means that when she's stuck with needles anywhere, she experiences intense pain, she's suffered a a collapsed vein, swelling, numbness, just all sorts of horrible stuff. So she had been experiencing this for years and didn't receive a diagnosis until 2016. She claims that there were three doping tests in particular in 2016 that caused intense pain and also caused her to withdraw from her first round U.S. Open match in 2016 against Kayla Day. Which is when we first learned about this whole stuff because uh, our friend and friend of the podcast, Michael Lewis, wrote an article about it. He Mm. was on site. She says she's been dealing with this for a long time. She tells doping control officers this is the situation and she claims she was met with intimidation, what she calls bullying, and just a lot of skepticism that this syndrome was real and that it wasn't just an attempt to evade the doping control process. Because also people, their first response to that that kind of stuff is, well, just, you know, this bullshit about man up 
and you're just afraid of needles, get over it. Well, it's more than that, though, because you and I talk about, especially me, these stories that people concoct when they either miss a doping test or test positive for something, that there are all sorts of fictions that pop up. And if you're not, if you're not really looking into the facts of this case, you can fall into that, oh, yeah, sure, and not believe her. No, but my but, point is, mm -hmm. like, the initial, when, say, for example, I'd said to you, I have to go give blood, but I can't do it because... Oh, it, it really hurts my veins. Right. Like, would you have really taken me seriously the first time? Like, it's the type of thing that people will not take seriously. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, she didn't actually have a medical diagnosis for this pain syndrome until after the U.S. Open in 2016. So those few tests that were so painful for her, she didn't have, you know, something on paper that she could point to. This is what my doctor said. I literally cannot get intravenous testing she's not saying that she can't give blood by a prick on the finger or other kinds of way other ways to give blood i mean i don't know how I, else you I would have no idea give blood in that well, volume or a how urine much... test is the other option well yeah but you'd have to give blood at some point as well right too right mm. like, according to the itf and wada that's part of the process mm -hmm. and i don't know how much blood is needed like how much do they actually draw you know, oh i have no idea so like yeah. is a prick on the finger enough she says that she's okay with doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently not. They they tap into a vein. One time she got it in her feet instead because that was suggested as an alternative and her foot swelled up badly. She claims that one time she was having symptoms of a panic attack and the doping control officer suggested she put something over her face, a blindfold, so she couldn't see it and that would forestall the panic attack, which she found incredibly insulting and demeaning. So... She's named the Swedish company that actually is administers the tests, like the subcontractor. She's named someone by name in the ITF who's in charge of the doping control program. And she's suing for $10 million. I don't know. She was given a stay, uh, basically like a one-year break from any intravenous drug testing. And it's expiring. And she's trying to get it reinstated for the rest of her career. And in the face of this diagnosis, I feel that the ITF would be hard-pressed to deny it. How do you deny it? I don't know if they're legally required to, to kind of respect that diagnosis. Do they believe it? Is it a, a recognized disability in whatever jurisdiction they operate in? I don't know. One of the things I find very interesting about this whole scenario is we're presented with this situation where the doping officials and authorities, their procedures, which we take for granted as needed, as beyond reproach, they're now coming into question. Right. And we now need to see if there's any flexibility on their... Well, I mean, the that might be the case going forward where they may have to be more flexible and provide room for flexibility going forward that may not help them if they have to pay out this large sum of money you know that horse has right. already flown through the gate right but it it questions this idea that we should just take everything that they say and do for granted as wholesome and needed and part of a process that is maintaining the integrity of sport i was struck that a lot of people in the tennis community were so trusting of authority <laughs> you know that that so many people just convinced themselves that wada and the itf were doing the right thing by default that the doping authorities were correct and that this was someone whining about the system and like i said we have been in this situation before where we have been highly skeptical of players excuses or stories mm -hmm. or rationales but in this case, I'm just surprised that someone with a documented condition is not being accommodated. And also that the peanut gallery, like us on tennis Twitter, a lot of people are not sympathetic at all, are not sensitive to what Madison Brengel claims that she's going through. I'm sure part of it is because of that wind she had over Serena. <laughs> <laughs> and also right. she doesn't have that great of a career so far. 
And she doesn't have a built-in fan base to no. rally behind her when something like this happens. And my point in saying that is not to de- degrade or demean Madison and her career, but people are often dismissive of folks when they don't have the string of results. Do you know, as if right. that, That's true, that yeah. alone gives them the credibility to be able to have this pulpit to speak out and take on authorities. Mm-hmm. And that because you don't have $10 million in the bank, you're automatically doing this because you want the money. Because you saw Jeannie Bouchard and she probably got a whole bunch of money from the UST and you're like, well, it's my turn to get some money. You know, I'd rather be out here lazy and not playing and just collect some coins and, you know, not have to play the rest of my career. Mm. Because that's part of it. That's what part of what folks are saying out here. The problem with simply trusting that WADA and the court of arbitration for sport is always doing what's right, like what's best for the sport's integrity, is that that's simply not the case. And we can point to many instances that prove that false, right? Mm -hmm. There, I mean, throughout its history, there have been tests that were simply thrown out or ignored. (laughs) Cover-ups. Andre Agassi talked about testing positive for meth in the 90s and nothing was done, right? That was kept silent until he broke the silence. We had the 1988 men's 100 meter final mm-hmm. where I believe every player but one, it's been proven. Every runner. Every player. <laughs> <laughs> wow, how embarrassing. Every runner but one, Carl Lewis, has been proven to have been taking an illegal substance. Carl Lewis is the only one that's not been proven? Yes. And that, 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 that case in the court of public opinion has been settled long ago. Right, right. And not saying that we know the truth, but the rumors about him have been pernicious. Mm-hmm. Since, and there have been rumors that, that the United States Track Association covered up doping tests for him for years. Mm-hmm. There's all that stuff you can find on the internet. Whether or not it's true is another matter, but that's part of the whole rumor mill surrounding that. Right. And so in this case, we, we don't know that. But in Agassiz's case, for example, we know this for a fact that tests were covered up and ignored. We have examples of silent bans, disproportionate punishments, depending on who it is, really. A lot of subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And so the subjectivity does not meet on an equal level the tarnishing to an athlete's reputation, right? Right. The biggest thing for me, and one that you mentioned earlier in the episode, was the fact that anti-doping authorities in every sport have trouble with grappling with the fact that the wealthy and the privileged and the well-connected can stay ahead of doping tests. They know how to mask and avoid testing positive when they're using. We see this in every sport. And so I only mention this to kind of shine a light on the limits and failures of anti-doping authorities in sports in general and in tennis in particular. I just don't think we can look at WADA and say, well, they're always doing the right thing. They know what's best. Or the ITF. And if you're presented with medical documentation saying that this is a legitimate problem, what was your response? Do you have receipts about your response? Do you have policies in place? Where did you take this seriously? Or were you just like, well, you you either do it this way or you get out of the sport? And I think what will come to light in court is, does the ITF have an accommodation policy in place? They may believe that they were following it. None of the defendants have actually responded in the press yet, as far as I can tell. I don't think they even received the lawsuit yet. This was just an announcement, and Madison's camp announced that, you know, we're suing for this much, and this is why. Again, this is a story to watch. It is going to take a long time to wrangle its way through the courts. But in the meantime, if you're curious about the history of Madison Brengel's issues with the ITF and WADA, you can check out our friend Michael Lewis's writing on the topic from 2016. Uh, you can find him at, at Michael J. Lewis 75. So this Davis Cup thing is rearing its head again. I have a feeling we're going to be hearing about this until the vote in August. Well, no sooner had I hit publish on the last episode did I come across some more stuff regarding this Davis Cup issue that would have been relevant to the last episode. So here we are. Mark Nixon on Twitter. His handle is Mark Allen Nixon. He uh, runs this blog called Tennis Translations. And so oftentimes you will be able to have access to stuff that's written about tennis in other languages. 
Lekeep is a big source of translations, which is where uh, this stuff came from. Lekeep seems to be leading the charge on coverage of this. It seems a lot more prevalent in French media than American and UK, I would say. Davis Cup just has more... Cachet. Cachet. It just goes to show that tennis is covered on a much bigger scale in some non-English-speaking countries. In places like France, Spain, even Italy. Mm-hmm. And so like, we, it's so easy to fall victim to this North American bias about how tennis is viewed and discussed. Mm-hmm. Because so, it's a niche sport here. It's yeah. more of a minor sport. Yeah, and so while folks are over here saying, oh, well, fuck Davis Cup. <laughs> we don't care about the history. Like This is a pretty big deal for a large majority of the tennis-playing countries. Right. And so one of the pieces from L'Equipe that Mark translated says that... So the ITF contracted Deloitte to help to put together this proposal about the new Davis Cup changes. So they were looking at three criteria, which was participation by top players, attendance, and commercial attractiveness. Obviously things that are going to generate revenue for the ITF. But apparently the ITF wouldn't provide very specific details about revenue. They release their year-end financial results every year. But beyond that, there's not much insight. They do show that they've increased revenues over the years from 2015. But beyond that, we don't really know a lot. It doesn't seem like they're showing any losses from Davis Cup, is the point. I'm curious to see, do we know that this new proposal is going to bring in a whole lot more revenue? I would think so. I think that's the only reason why it's being done. But who is the money going to? Right. (laughs) Right now they give a ton of money to the federations as part of their, you know, part of their revenue goes to the federations. But it seems like they're looking to please sponsors and television broadcasters, which of course is part of the game. But is it worth changing this format fundamentally? And is it sustainable? Now, one of the key findings from this Lakeep story is that apparently the players are not convinced that it's going to pass. No, and we were told initially that, oh, it has a lot of player support. But in fact, what it seems to be is that we have a lot of support from the very top players. Right. This is your quintessential top 1% kind of scenario. <laughs> because if you if you go to the top, well, I can't say top 10, no, because... Djokovic is no longer in the top 10 and mm. some of those other guys. That wasn't a shady moment. It's just the truth. Right. But in, in theory, you know, it's a if you go outside of the top 10 guys, then you start to get a lot more resistance. And it seems to be led at the moment by Luca Pui. He's very outspoken yes. about this issue. He's threatening to boycott. There are a lot of players who are not superstars who their, their career moments are in Davis Cup. Dave Haggerty said in another story translated by Mark that he was at Dave Haggerty, the chief of the ITF, was at Indian Wells. He spoke with a lot of players and they're all in support. We don't know who those players are or how many players he spoke with, but the rumors are swirling that this is not going to pass at the general meeting in August. Of course, that's what we said about Donald Trump being elected well so. the, it allegedly wasn't going to pass even before this past davis cup weekend with mm. david ferrer <laughs> i get the impression that this is very much a money grab situation and the drastic overhaul seems to me a direct response to the great success of labor cup sure you know it went yeah. from like talking about tweaks to whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. let's make the labor cup but on steroids Right. And you get blinded by those dollars and the success of that and try to replicate it on a bigger scale. And then you go dump it at the end of the season after the World Tour Finals. When who's going to be there? Who's going to be in good Mm -hmm. shape? And what kind of atmosphere do you expect? It's probably going to be in Asia, possibly in Singapore. How many fans from the different Davis Cup countries are going to converge somewhere in Asia that's far away from their home base, it does change the tenor of the competition quite a lot. Yeah, I think that was one of the arguments put forth by John Wortham yes. in his last mailbag, right? There there are a few red flags. I think our thinking has evolved a lot yes. on this from totally neutral because, because they're just the things that they don't pass like the eye test for uh-uh. me. So, like when you're being told one thing but you can see 
the breadcrumbs leading to right. something else. Haggerty said something that was a bit alarming. He said, quote, the broadcasters and sponsors want more exposure, unquote. And that seems to be the driving force behind this. Of course they want more exposure. They're always going to want more exposure. Is it worth it? And doesn't make sense. Is it going to attract top talent? Maybe. But again, like, is this sustainable? And are you alienating a lot of the fans who make Davis Cup what it is? And who are loyal to tennis, like, year in and year out? You're willing to destroy the history of the event. It's one of the more storied sporting events in all of sports at this point, in terms of how far it goes back. Right. And for what? Because you feel like top 10 players or top players aren't playing anymore. They're, it's, it's understandable. They're well into their 30s. Like that most they'll play one tie per cycle. Mm. And then maybe, like say Spain gets to the final this year, is Rafa, is Rafa going to play? Like we don't know. We have no way of knowing. Like we don't know if he's going to be healthy he enough to healthy? play. Right. So you can't hang your hat on the top players anymore. This is a very unique set of top male tennis players driving the men's game. And so you're going to make all these decisions based on their input at this specific time within the specific era to then alter the history of all that came Mm. before and what's to come going forward. Being puppeteered by people who want a big payout. Like, why is Gerard Piquet involved? (laughs) Don't (laughs) understand. And I think tennis has come a long way in the past uh, maybe 20 to 30 years of appealing to a more diverse demographic, a more socioeconomically diverse demographic. A lot of people can go to tennis for cheap. In Toronto, you can go for a day pass for 20 bucks at the Rogers Cup early in the week, right? But something like Labor Cup, where a package starts at what, like $1,900? Who's, I'm not going to that. I'm not spending well, that. There, you know. We get misinformation about that. There's okay. Tickets are being bought up and resold on secondary markets mm. and all that stuff. Allegedly, you could have gotten a, a, a seat for the three days for like $300 initially. Like uh-huh. way up high okay. or whatever. But still, it's expensive. And then to get yourself to Chicago. Mm-hmm. But my point is that tennis has made strides in being less elitist. And I'd like it to keep going in that direction mm-hmm. because you can see a baseball game even to this day in a major city for $20. You know, you can go go downtown and see the Blue Jays any night of the week and get a cheap ticket. I'd like tennis to be like that, too. Clearly, our thinking has evolved on this. We just wanted to talk about some of the stuff that we were made aware of post our last segment mm-hmm. to give a more rounded opinion. <laughs> <laughs> And if you're sick and tired of hearing about Davis Cup, we don't blame you. Unless something else comes up, it might be off the agenda for a while. Right. <laughs> Happy trails to Casey Delacqua. She announced her retirement, which came as a shock, but not as a shock. I was downstairs. You're about. You were getting ready to go to bed. You were upstairs, and you heard me watching her Insta story and her announcement. And you called down. And you're like, "That's not Casey, is it?" I heard an Australian accent. I'm like, no, no, I know who that is. The writing was on the wall when Ash was out here looking for another doubles partner yeah. this year. When even she on a part-time basis. moved forward with Colleen. And from what I understood, it was like, Casey's not traveling that much anymore. I need to find another doubles partner for the, the main part of the season. Mm-hmm. I kind of assumed that Casey would play majors still. That's what I thought, too. But who can blame her? Uh, she's in her mid-30s now. She's got two kids, a family. I think she's she's tired of, of the life and is ready to just spend time at home. If you get a chance, head over to Twitter. Check out Plucky Loser. She scripted a beautiful thread dedicated to Casey and really captured what was special about her and her career, specific to being Australian, because they're both Australian. Mm-hmm. Frith was able to tap into that really well. For us personally, she was a champion for LGBT rights, a very visible out gay person in tennis. She was somebody who was smack dab in the middle of the Margaret Court situation Mm -hmm. the last couple of years. She's somebody who, even though she didn't want to, she was dragged into speaking up and she did. Right. And we thank her for that and we're forever grateful. 
and just the mere visibility of being out and proud was something that is such a credit to her as a person. And then when you couple that with how universally liked and loved she is on the tour, Frith talked about her as being a burst of sunshine. You mm-hmm. know, you'd almost, you'd be hard pressed to find a time when Casey wasn't giving her most ebullient best in public. And I think what you said about her being out for a long time, she was just kind of comfortably, plainly out. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Like, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't something that she chose to talk to talk about very often. She just wanted to be herself. Mm-hmm. And that was something that in previous generations, uh, that wasn't available. It wasn't an option. Uh, but when push came to shove and she felt cornered. When Margaret Court put her name mm-hmm. and her family's name in her mouth right in that opinion piece that she wrote casey decided to step up in a big way in a principled way at a time when it was on the ballot in australia Mm -hmm. as well gay marriage all this is to say we've definitely lost one of the good ones and somebody that we can absolutely unreservedly root for unfortunately she was 0-7 in slam doubles finals right she won a mixed title, though. She did. She does have a Grand Slam mm-hmm. title uh, at Roland Garros in 2011 with Scott Lipsky. And she and Ash have been in the finals of all four majors. I'll, I'll miss seeing both of them on court together. Now we're going to be doing a quiz. It's been a while since we've done a quiz. You're going to be quizzing me. I know that I've been accused in the past of scripting some wildly challenging quizzes. <laughs> ridiculous quizzes. True. Are you getting... I didn't do that to you. You didn't do that I to I want me. you to have a fighting chance. Okay. And so... The... No, no, no. This segment is dedicated to my alma mater, my high school. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many Jamaican listeners we have, but we have a high school quiz competition in Jamaica called Schools Challenge Quiz, and all the high schools get together and compete on television in a host of academic categories (laughs) and at the end of the season uh, a winner is crowned and for many a season my school uh, just chose not to enter it was thought I can tell you the actual reason behind it because I often wondered this while I was there as a bit of a nerd in high school it's like well damn why can't we be on schools challenge quiz they're like well we we get the results where it counts be it O levels, CXCs. Oh, wow. At Oxbridge. Yeah, when we take our Cambridge A and level exams and we get our, our results, that's where we show our metal and our worth. Well, it seems that post my academic career in Jamaica, <laughs> that thinking has changed and Campion College has been. Oh, compu- well, I wasn't sure if you were going to name it. I, I named it. Campion College has participated in the, the last, I want to say, four or five schools challenge quizzes and they they were victorious a couple days ago they beat saint jago high school a team a school that i played cricket against and and beat i'll Mm. I'll have you know i see i played them once and we beat them and we beat them again at schools challenge quiz (laughs) (laughs) so as our school song started hail campion hail wow it was hard (laughs) when i started knowing you it was hard to understand like the the pride and also the status that went along with high schools in Jamaica in Kingston especially like I just did not get it and because I introduced we do not you, have that I introduced where I'm you from. to schools challenge quiz and you're able and to it watch it is awesome it's wild it is worth a watch i think we watched it's it on a, jtv yeah, it's website. emotional the the uh, the St. Jago team both teams were in tears afterwards oh really yeah, there were it was tears of joy and despair Damn. So the library is open. Mm-hmm. It's time for your quiz. Give it to I me. I promise that it was topical. So this is about clay tennis. Oh, Lord. All right. So, as you know, Chris Everett has the longest winning streak on any surface. Mm-hmm. 125 matches on clay that ran from 1973 U.S. Clay Court Tournament to the 1979 Italian Open. Can you name five players... That she beat in that stretch. Over those 125 matches? Yeah. Let's think about the 1970s. Uh, Rosicci? Yes. Navratilova? Yes. Billie Jean King? Yes. Gulagong? Mm-hmm. 
And when did it end? 79? Yeah. Oh, who is this last person that I'm going to say now? I am going to say Margaret Court. Yes. That was too easy, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all the big ones, really. Question two. Who ended her streak? In 1979? Mm-hmm. This is just going to be a guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be a guess. I mean, the obvious answer is Navratilovo. And that's who I'm going to go is with. Is that your answer? That is my that's answer. That's your final answer? That's my final answer. It was frequent bugaboo Tracy Austin ah. 1979 Italian Open mm. really Tracy's heyday Chris Everett married John Lloyd in 1979 in 1977 John Lloyd became the first British man in the open era to do what to win a tournament on clay <laughs> no what, what he kind became of the is first that? British man to reach a Grand Slam singles final oh okay in the open era since Fred Perry and he lost that 1977 Australian Open to Vetus Gariolitis. That was played on clay? No. Well, I don't know. It may have been. This was related to Chris Ebert. Okay. She's the clay queen. That's a bit tangential. Was that misleading? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> they're all related it it, it in some way. It made it seem that the final was played on clay. Okay. I hear you. I understand. I'm not going to give it to you, mm -hmm. but I get it. Don't take it so literally. So question four. Back when Masters tournaments were best of five, who did Rafael Nadal beat to win his first two Masters titles? And they were on clay. And they were the same person. That would have been 2005? Yes. Again, I feel like there's an obvious answer. Is it Federer? No. So then my answer is Gaudium. No. <laughs> you know damn well that Gaudio won the French and that was like it. <laughs> Ferrero? No. You're forgetting someone who, who was supposed to be like the heir apparent to Kerton on clay, who never, never broke through. What country? Argentina. Puerto? Guillermo Coria. Oh. Remember that? Yes. Oh my god. Question five. Rafael Nadal tied Roger Federer in 2005 as the player with the most titles that year. How many did each win? Twelve. Eleven. So close. This is this to is be this clear. Hard? To is be this clear, really this is supposed to be easy. Okay. I didn't say easy. Number six. Which clay great? had his career put in peril after being struck by a drunk driver. Can I have the language of origin, please? <laughs> I can say it happened at Miami in 1989, I believe. 1989, Clay Great. He was apparently loading something in the trunk of the car and was struck by a car and almost ended his career. Was it at the tail end of his career or the start of his career? No. I would say... Close to the start. Close to the start. Clay Great. So that would have to be either Mooster or Bruguera. I'd say Bruguera. No, go with your first choice. Mooster? Yes. Oh, I knew that. Yeah. I actually did know yeah. that. It was part of that Miami retrospective. Yeah, I knew mm -hmm. that he had a big accident. I did know that. Okay. So number seven. Venus Williams has nine titles on clay. In what city did she win her first title on clay? <laughs> I know Serena won her first title in Paris. Venus won her first clay title in Madrid. Rome. Rome. Number eight. This all-time great and all-time clay great is the namesake of several modern-day South American players. Male. Is the namesake? Mm-hmm. Meaning they have the same first name. And they were named specifically after him. Do you have another clue? Wait, you really don't know? No. Okay. Rafa passed his clay streak to create the record. I can only think of Guillermo Villas. Correct. Coria and Cañas were both named after him. Mm -hmm. Just like a certain Ms. Hingis was named after Martina Navratilova. 
Can you see? Can you feel through the airwaves how unhappy I am right now with this quiz? <laughs> okay, number nine. So, Guillermo Vilas had the longest clay winning streak in history. It was stopped by a certain player playing with a spaghetti strung racket that was later banned by the ATP. What player stopped his clay streak? It's that fucker from Romania. What's his yes. name again? Um, the, the misogynist <laughs> bastard. I will give that to you because I know who you're talking about. Wait, wait, wait. It's um, Ilya Nastasi. Correct. The stringing technique was banned right after that by the ATP. So if you don't count that loss, he actually ties Rafa's record of 81 straight clay matches. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Number 10. This is interesting. I didn't know about this. So in 1981, Roland Garros introduced new prizes for sportsmanship, character, and revelation of the year. So like breakthrough player. Mm-hmm. So Which year was this? 1981. Mm-hmm. So the, the Prix Orange recognizes the player with the best sportsmanship and cooperative attitude toward the press. So with that in mind, can you... Think of two players in the 1990s who would have won that. And they only gave one prize per year. So it can be a a man or a woman. So there were 10 given in the 90s. Yes. And this was at Roland Garros. Mm -hmm. Was it given to a winner? (laughs) Um, It looks like at some points, yes. At some points. I'm going to say Celis. Yes. And I am going to say... Bruguera is going to get it as well. No. Give me another one. Courier? Yes. The other players who won it were Guy Forget. Uh, this is interesting. Famille Sanchez. The whole family apparently got it in 1991. <laughs> uh, Stefan Edberg, of course. Mm-hmm. Someone named Butch. Butch. Something in German. I don't know who that is. Sampras. Courier Celis. Martina Hingis. Think about that for a second. Just just ruminate. Yeah, with... Forget about Hingis. Sampras won it for being generous enough to exit the tournament before <laughs> the semifinals every year. Is that it? Uh, I guess. Martina Hingis won the Prix Orange in 1997, which is interesting. That was two years before the day that will live in infamy against Steffi Graf. I imagine she would not win it if that had come to light. And then Gustavo Curtin and Alex Karecha. Is this quiz over yet? There's just one more. Question 11. This person became the youngest Grand Slam champion ever at Roland Garros, only to be surpassed a few years later at another major tournament. So this person won at Roland Garros to become the youngest to then be surpassed a few years later. By a next younger person. Were they surpassed at Roland Garros? No. So this person was Monica Seles and she was surpassed by Martina Hingis. Yes. Finally, I get something that I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that was the 1990 French Open, which was uh, Seles' first major. And Martina Hingis surpassed her, became the youngest at the 1997 Australian Open, which was her first major. So I got like, what, three and a half, right? No, you got six out of 11. (laughs) That's, That's pretty good. I didn't realize that the quiz was so hard. I did not make Campion College proud. Let's put it that way. (laughs) This was a school's challenge fail. But yes, you are right. That was a very difficult quiz. And I hope the all listeners back me up on this. Let's finish this episode with our brand new segment called Diva. You said divas before. It's called Diva. It's called Diva? Diva. And the definition (laughs) of Diva is that a Diva is a female version of a hustler. Oh, you're going with the Beyonce definition. Of a hustler. Mm-hmm. Of a hustler. <laughs> this week, I was in bed. You had already, I mean, you leave for work hours before I'm even awake. Mm-hmm. And I first thing I do, I wake up, I check my phone, I see you've sent me a DM with a link to this thing, and I look at it, and I'm, I click on it, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, what? It's not. It took a good thirty seconds for it to register, and then it was like, oh. This makes so much sense as a lifelong, practically, card-carrying member of the Lamely. Mariah Carey acknowledged 
or declared the fact that she's been dealing with bipolar 2 disorder since 2001. And if you know anything about Mariah, you know that she's been much maligned and caricatured, not just as a diva, but as kind of batshit crazy, something that I've railed against a long time as being fucking rude and disrespectful and not really getting Mariah as a diva and her own quirky personality as someone who is eternally 12, as she says. She came out and she let us know that this is something that she's been struggling with for 17 years now, going on 17 years. Well, likely longer, but something Mm -hmm. that she's known about for 17 years. And you'll remember that MTV TRL Live appearance where people talked about how she stripped and got naked on TV, which she never did. She took off her top and had another top on underneath. She was carrying an ice cream cart. There were rambling messages on her website at the time. This is how long ago that was. She literally called up to her website <laughs> and left a voicemail. Right. And there was a, a clip, I believe, it was with Cindy Berger trying to grab the microphone from her, her PR person at the time, where she was uh, exhibiting symptoms of paranoia, to be frank, that people were out to get her. Which, it turns out, she may have been quite right about that. Yeah. About her, the dissolution of her marriage with Tommy Mottola, the controversy over the samples being stolen and giving to other mm-hmm. artists. Which is why she doesn't know J-Lo. Right. Like, there are receipts There's for a that. lot of context behind that. Tommy Mottola... Mariah alleges was emotionally abusive, controlling, when hired investigators. Yeah, when yeah. their marriage dissolved, Mariah was no longer the sole focus at Sony, and Jayla was up and coming, and somehow Mariah's upcoming project, where she'd been working on Glitter for years, the Loverboy sample, the sample that she was going to use for Loverboy, ended up on a JLo record. Mm-hmm. Somehow, right? With JLo being the new face of Sony, right. and Tommy's new It Girl. So that's where the I don't know her comes from. So that that whole feeling like somebody's out to get her was real and existing for a long time. And with the pressures of Glitter, this somewhat autobiographical story in her major motion picture debut and a soundtrack that was functioning as a studio album to boot, all being helmed by her, became too much. And what... What resulted was what's widely known now as Mariah's Breakdown, and not the Breakdown, which is one of her greatest records ever mm-hmm. on Butterfly. This actually brings up something we talked about earlier. Mariah, at the time, was trying to reassert control over her public image and didn't really have the avenue. Her publicist was trying to protect her, like you said, basically trying to cut her off. The stories in the media about her were full of ridicule, poking fun at Mariah's breakdown. She didn't live in a time where she could actually set her own agenda, where she could tell her story. And at the time, she wasn't ready and willing to to share all of herself. No, and she tells us now that back then she legitimately feared that if this story came out right when her career was in a tailspin, the first real turmoil her career had ever experienced right i mean she was a chart topper year in year out she released a record a year when she wasn't doing a studio album she was doing a christmas album she was doing the mtv live Mm. the unplugged then the divas live the number ones album like every year in the 90s she had a huge success and come the turn of the millennium and things start to unravel and at that time if you think that the public discourse surrounding mental health is terrible now Imagine what it was back then. Right. And so she had a legitimate fear that at the the very low of her professional career, that this would have ended her for good. And it very well could have. But there was a great BuzzFeed piece about this called We Owe Mariah Carey an Apology that said, if you think about it, she is actually the first person of her stature as a celebrity to tell the world that she's suffering from a mental health problem that she has a diagnosis. And so you see a younger generation of women like Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez talk openly about suffering from depression and anxiety, but you have never seen really someone from the pantheon of pop culture icons come out so explicitly. And I think that the good that she can do and the conversation that someone like Mariah Carey can open up is is something we don't quite understand yet. 
because for someone who was ridiculed for so long because of her behavior, she can now kind of take it back and say, listen, like I've been dealing with this stuff for a long time and I'm not ashamed anymore. That is so powerful. And we should not conflate this diagnosis and this revelation of the diagnosis with all of Mariah's behavior, right? There's, there's Mariah the right, diva. Because, because some is, of it's just, you know, your personality. And that's the beauty of Mariah, mm-hmm. like, for me at least. I know some people <laughs> don't see it that way. But I've seen people say like, oh man, I always thought she was crazy, I didn't like how she behaved, but now I respect her. That's part of the story. Like you're still not, you're still not getting Mariah. Like mm-hmm. she's quirky, she does ridiculous things, and that's part of who she is. I don't think that can all be boiled down and explained away by by bipolar mental illness to disorder, yeah. because those people fail to see the humor in mm-hmm. what she was doing for a long time. But as a fan, it was it was heartbreaking because then you go back over the years. And you recall all the all the times that she was dismissed and written off, not just in recent times because she's gotten older. Let's be frank, that's part of it. You know, pop stars are discarded by and large after the age of 35, mm. which coincides with the emancipation of Mimi. She was 35 when she scripted one of the greatest comebacks in pop music history. Mm. After being diagnosed in 2001, she goes through four years of trying to rediscover the magic and April 2005 she unleashes this behemoth of a record on the world and by September we belong together was still number one yeah interrupted by one week by fucking Carrie Underwood's <laughs> inside your heaven one of those American Idol throwaway winner tracks interrupted her for 14 week run at number one could very well have yeah. been 15 but for that one week that was back in the day when american idol could release like whatever turd was their winning song and it would reach number one but my point is it was heartbreaking thinking all that she would have gone through in silence feeling that she couldn't talk about it and there are people now who are cynical to say well She's at the absolute rock bottom of her career. This is all a PR move. Like, who are you and what is your life if that is your take? <laughs> Honestly. Right? It's, it's sad. That level of cynicism, how do you leave your house every day to face the world? Mm. It's, uh, because when it comes down to it, she is a diva. She can be ridiculous, but she's a human being. And we don't know what she has suffered in her personal life what she's dealt with and think about the you know if even if you don't care about mariah she may what she's done could actually cause some good for other people i am by no means equating her to caitlin jenner but i think that and i have every hope that she will do better than caitlin jenner did Mm. with her opportunity but when caitlin jenner came out as transgender so many people in our personal lives and what we saw in public because you know folks come to us because we're the resident gays right like we must have the the expert opinion on everything the folks in our lives yes not like (laughs) yes and i always said you know obviously caitlin jenner previously bruce jenner comes from a walk of life and a politics that i do not see eye to eye with but this is an incredible opportunity for her to have an impact Mm. and despite the backdrop of keeping up with the Kardashians and that family and and the suspicion that it was in part for publicity and to drive that Kardashian machine, I was absolutely wholehearted in reserving my my skepticism because, you know, so many people could benefit from this. Right. And that's what I hope Mariah is able to do for so many people. Because as you said, somebody of this stature giving voice to this issue can cause and affect immeasurable goodness and change. Now, on a lighter note, Mariah is obviously a diva who is very important to both of us, but even more so you. You have kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of Mariah Carey stuff. Mm -hmm. I want to know, just share with me and the listeners, what is your first Mariah Carey memory? Easy. My very first Mariah Carey memory was turning on the TV. We had a a dish, a satellite dish in Jamaica. And I don't know what channel it might have been. It might even have been much music for all I know. 
that's the Canadian yes. music channel the for Canadian MTV, you non-Canadians essentially mm. but I was getting this in Jamaica and I was nine years old and Dream Lover video came on and there was Mariah with the plaid buttoned down mm-hmm. unbuttoned and tied at the bottom exposing the midriff with the jeans shorts prancing around in the field as for all intents and pur- purposes a visually white person with a whole bunch of backup dancers who are of color and giving me all kind of sounds that I couldn't pinpoint what genre they were from. Mm-hmm. And I was mesmerized. And from then, the next <laughs> the next challenge was to buy Music Box on cassette tape whenever I was out looking in the stores. For, you know, they had the 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 spiral cassette yeah, deck yeah. thing those where you, little towers yes that spun around and no store was worth anything if it did not have the right side of Mariah's face <laughs> on that cassette tower oh. right because that was the album cover the yeah. right side of her face and it was very like the entire thing was white oh yeah I remember that mm-hmm. it was in black and white but it was like lighter yes. tones yeah mm-hmm. and then I was able to just dis- I paid attention to the tone in her voice as a nine-year-old. And then I was able to pick up on the radio songs. Like, oh, is that? I knew this wasn't her first album. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that must be her. And then I'd hear The Vision of Loves, all these other Can't Let Go, Love Takes Time, Make It Happen, all the other songs that would come on the radio that I, I wasn't aware of. I was able to discover that after the fact. And then going forward, it's just been, as you, as I tell people, I could teach a course. <laughs> right. I remember... My first memory is like popping emotions cassette tape into my little Walkman and just like jamming out. I think it was, well, I must have been like five or six years old when it came out. So what you're saying is your mother had that cassette? No, I I either asked for it or somebody bought it for me when I was little. Oh. That's what I, that was probably like one of my first tapes. And then you kind of went away from Mariah for a while? I did. I had a lapse. You know, I was into like more white music for a little while. Or as I describe, <laughs> you got real snobby about music. Uh, no, but I like through the, you know, the early years, Music Box, the Christmas stuff, uh, Daydream, all that. I was into that. I would like jam out in the basement and sing along and stuff. One of the ways that we bonded early in our relationship, this is some body serve insight here, real personal stuff. On one of our first dates, you were driving and you were playing Talking Book in your car. Mm, which is a Stevie Wonder album. Mm-hmm. And you and I came on. And I was like, well, hold up. I know that song only because I watched Mariah perform in tribute to Stevie, you and I, live on BT a few years before. And mm-hmm. I just one of my all-time favorite Mariah live performances. Like, you get the full range of her vocal ability in that performance like if you think of mariah as somebody who hits the high notes she lets you know how low she can go in that performance Mm -hmm. and that was in what probably 2003 Mm -hmm. so that was you know one of the the transition periods of her career she had the charm bracelet hair when people were talking trash about her and so we bonded over that and then very early on i got you to go and investigate the butterfly album because i was like this is this is seminal stuff not that you didn't know right, about no, it. No, but that's that's when I was like in middle school and moving into like different music, you know, mm. like rebelling. So I missed, unfortunately, I missed Meanwhile, it. I was having conversations in the ninth grade, arguments in the middle of science class. <laughs> I can remember this with my friends who are picking apart with their very literal, small, puny brains, the butterfly video about why is she fucking singing to a fucking horse? <laughs> Spread your wings and prepare to fly because you have become a butterfly and she's singing to a horse. I'm like, listen, this is metaphorically speaking, okay? The horse is a man, okay? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I have nothing to say. So shall we pick up with another diva next time? Maybe not next time, but it will be a... Mm. Something we clearly have not spoken all there is to say about Mariah. She will be revisited at some no, point. No, I've been asking you to do a fully Mariah episode for a long time, and we haven't done it. I know. All right. So in the future, I could foresee talking about Aretha, Whitney, Stevie Nicks, Amy Winehouse. We could do an ep- entire episode on the importance of the miseducation of Lauren Hill. We'll end this segment by saying 
congrats Mariah, thank you Mariah, and we absolutely wholeheartedly wish you the very best. On that note, good on your case, good luck. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the memories. And with that, we're signing off. Find us on Twitter at the Body Serve, same handle on the on Instagram. You can find me, James, at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. Thank you to the folks who have given us reviews on iTunes recently. We've gotten one from Australia. We've gotten one from the U.S. We've A good seen one them. from Australia, too. I know. It's We've, uh, we see them. We thank you. And again, if you want a tangible way to support the podcast, shy of asking us for a mailing address and sending us a check. <laughs> Which is also acceptable. It is absolutely acceptable. You can head over to iTunes no matter where you are in this world and write us a review and let people know why they should be listening to The Body Serve. Because trust, there are enough people out there telling people why they shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And if you believe that, please have the courtesy to write your first and last name. (laughs) (laughs) Till next time. 